about Discovery Edition. As always, coming at you from Austin, Texas. That's me. My name is Matt. And coming to you from the east side of Texas in Houston is my brother. Say hello, Ken. Peace and long life. That's right. Well, here we are back here for episode three of Discovery, Context of the Kings. All right. I'm pretty excited. A really good episode this week. I really enjoyed this one. This, in many ways, is the first episode of what will be going forward we meet we get the ship reveal at the beginning we meet the captain we meet the crew there's a few familiar faces out of burnham's past but this is really so much new material it's a new beginning absolutely absolutely it's like a a new pilot that we're jumping into this week you know i wonder to what extent because you can look back at at the original series and think, you know what, they actually benefited from their two starts. Yes. You know, so they introduced a lot of cool stuff in the first pilot. And then, of course, they had to go back and redo it. And then they introduced a lot of cool stuff in the second pilot. And having two beginnings, two introductions, two attempts to bring in the good stuff allows you to, in a sense sift out the best stuff to carry over into your second beginning. Well, no, that's a good point. And since we're on that, what do you think that they brought back from the first ep first two episodes that work really well in this one? Well, of course, we're going to focus on Michael Burnham. True. So there's that character. We brought Saru back. Uh huh. Well, you know, so it's interesting because you... You watch the whole episode, and you have to think, okay, this is Starfleet at war. What would Starfleet at war look like? You know, one of the things, I'm, I'm going to make some Next Generation references here. You're, you're going to see guys like Captain Jellicoe show up and take command of starships. That, you know, whoever, whoever was in command of Discovery before was probably a science officer, had come up through the science branch, and was merely, you know, had enough command credentials and so forth to supervise a ship whose mission was science, discovery, exploration, and maybe even, you know, mostly the science piece and less the exploration piece. And so whoever that was, you know, as soon as this happens, they're like, whoa, 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 we got too much science on this ship. You go off and become a science officer you know, someplace else, or, um, you know, run a, run a laboratory making weapons or whatever. We're going to bring in Captain Lorca to run this ship in a much more military manner. And, of course, a guy like Lorca, he needs someone who's going to back him up. And, you know, who do you want most? First officer, that would be a good choice. Um, science officer, no, already taken. We got the guy working on the drive. How about Commander Landry? 
And so I think you realize by the end of the episode that Lorca and Commander Landry are like two peas in a pod, right? They kind of, you know, belong together. And then on the other hand, you've got Saru, who's a science officer. Now he's the first officer, but obviously a very science-oriented guy. He belongs on a ship like Discovery. And then you've got Lieutenant Stanitz, who's an engineer, but of course doing some innovative science. And so you've got this divide in the crew. You've got Saru and Stanitz, who, who would probably be much happier just doing the science. And then you've got Lorca and Landry, who are, are here to win the war. And the science is merely a means to an end for them. Just one of the many ways, apparently, that they're going to try and win this war. Because there's some other stuff going on here that we don't know about yet, for sure. <laughs> I'm sure there is, yeah. So uh, I'm going to do a little bit behind-the-scenes stuff like I always do at the top of the show. Talk about uh, some of the reviews that I was looking at online. Uh, right now, on Rotten Tomatoes, it's got an 86%, which is a very good rating for Rotten Tomatoes. And I feel that like 80-85% of the reviews that I, were re that I read through online were all, were all pretty... A lot of them were basically saying, like, this is a good setup, but it will be interesting to see what happens next. Because it'll really make or break the show where it goes from here. I saw a lot of stuff that said like that. Um, mm -hmm. I was reading a, uh, a, a, a review on redshirtsalwaysdie.com, which I just stumbled across. Uh, they agreed with you on the decision to take the modern technology and sort of move it forward into the future and not, like, retro backwards from yeah. the original series but you know it's also a lot of things that i was reading in the reviews were people talking about how it felt much more like the kelvin timeline from the movies from jj verse you mm -hmm. know and uh and i think that that's part of the reason was because of the because of that stuff because of because of the technology of it uh, not to mention uh, i saw this in a uh, i saw this in a video uh i think it was collider on their review was talking about when uh, Giorgio pulls her phaser. She turns it from blue, which is stunned, to red, which is apparently also something from the JJ universe too. So it's almost like they're sort of cherry picking what they want from the two universes and then putting them right. into this one. So I think, you know, one of the things that you've got going on is that there was a lot of technology that Star Trek would theorize, and then years later. I mean, you know, just a few years later, it would be, it would either become a, a reality or it would become, it would go from being speculative fiction to like something that engineers were working on. You know, so we remember that Next Generation starts off with, they get rid of the clipboards and the pens and they go to these little pads. And of course, now we all have iPads or, or Kindles or, you know, tablets. And so to go back to, Captain Kirk signing with a clipboard and a pen and a styrofoam, you know, cup of coffee. You're like, this is wacky. Well, of course yeah, he'd have a pad. Exactly. Of course he would, because I have a pad. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, another thing, another interesting thing I read in a few different reviews was that uh, they felt that uh, Giorgio and Dekuvma died too quickly, mm -hmm. that they were like almost too good of characters to lose right off the bat. <clears throat> I definitely feel that way about Dekuvma because I think that he's a really interesting Klingon, 
We'll have to see where the Klingons go from here, obviously. We didn't see them at all in this episode. Too busy focusing on Discovery, which is fine. Uh, but, you know, like, Giorgio dying was like... It made sense for the character... Giorgio was, was the Obi-Wan. Right, exactly. I mean, you know, <laughs> Obi-Wan's got to die early. <laughs> exactly. Uh, CNN uh, really disliked it. Actually, uh, they were saying that it, there was a deficiency of both humor and fuel that they felt kept the original series going. Mostly the com camaraderie between the next gener or between the uh, Kirk and Spock and McCoy, which I totally disagree with because right. we even talked about it last episode that you know, first of all, they only had a little bit of time in which they could spend on that, but I thought that they developed it really quick. You felt like they had been together for seven years. Yeah, I, I really feel that these characters are lived in. Yep. That they are fully fleshed out, that enough time has been given to, you know, who they are and their backstories and and whether this is the writing or the actors who have figured out a way to bring these characters to life or obviously a combination of the two. They have done a really good job making these characters feel fully fleshed out here in the beginning. Right. And I thought I thought there was a lot of humor in the banter. This is a yes, more exactly. This is a more bantery show. And you know, part of that's where we are in television, right? We're post West Wing. We're post um who's the uh where the Buffalo Roam, the playwright Mammoth. Mm-hmm. Yes. What we, the things that we've got in terms of writing between e even Next Generation, DS9, and Voyager, and today, what we're used to in terms of this kind of stuff has evolved, has moved forward, and I, I think it, it just feels better to have a bantery kind of episode, because that's, that's how TV works now. And there was a lot of humor in that banter. I thought there was a lot of... Everyone had their own little one-liners and jokes and, and bits and jabs. and. Yeah, no, I thought it was really good. Uh, just to make your point, you meant American Buffalo, not where the Buffalo roam. Yes. That's <laughs> <laughs> all right. That's cool. Just wanted to clear that up so we didn't get a bunch of emails from people being like, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Although that's probably true anyway, let's be honest. Um uh, the other thing CNN said, which was really interesting, was they also felt that you really had to be a strong Trek fan to continue on with the show, you know, to ante up the money to keep paying, uh, which I think is interesting, and it's hard for me to refute that, being a big Trek fan, you know, to say whether or not, obviously I'm going to keep watching it because of, you know, my history, but... I think that's the theory, though. This is the third time in which someone has come up with the idea hey, we're going to start a new network or platform on the back of Star Trek. In the yeah, 70s... I UPN did the same thing. Yeah, in the 70s, Paramount, Paramount came up with the idea and then decided, let's make the movies instead, and then we'll put... Mm -hmm. And then they do Next Generation, and it kind of ends up just... It was the first show that was it was made for syndication. It didn't have yeah. a home. Yeah. So in, in that sense, they, they ultimately did innovate in that way. And then, of course, UPN you know was yep. again built on the back of star trek and so here we're, we're doing it a third time we're going to build a new platform on star trek so it's the fate of star trek to carry uh, media to boldly go where no media has gone before <laughs> and uh 
for a political joke, I'll say that uh, while CNN did not like it, Fox News did not review it at all. So, uh, <laughs> Variety says that uh, Discovery could uh, uh, thinks it, it's laid the groundwork to be something great. It says it could provide viewers with the kind of character-driven space-set sci-fi narrative that has been long missing on the television scene. thought that was a really good line, so I had to yeah. uh, say that one. And Hollywood Reporter uh, wondered... Well, she was the Hollywood Reporter was wondering if this was supposed to be a vehicle for its leading actress, whoever it was supposed to be, since it ended up being, um, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> I'm thinking Sasha Baron Cohen, but obviously that's not right. And Sasha was her name on Walking Dead, so that's not right. Sinequa Martin Green. That's there who you I'm go. Trying to think of. Yes. Anyway, three names. I know exactly, um, <laughs> but not Sasha Baron Cohen. <laughs> But they also asked the question, would it drive people to go all access? And uh, Hollywood Reporter's point in this point was said that it didn't work for them on this one because they felt that the bringing or doing the, the cold open basically like they did for those first two episodes probably wasn't enough to get people interested into the, the series without seeing Discovery, without seeing what Lorca was like. Which I also thought was an interesting thought, too, which is why I uh, so, uh, mentioned it. You know, my guess is that they're aware that there are going to be two tiers, right? There's going to uh -huh. be the one group of people who are probably serious Trek fans who are going to pay the upfront for two reasons. One is they want to see the show now, right? This, mm -hmm. is, this is why anyone subscribes to anything, is they want to see the content now. They want to, see the, they want to get access to the new right away. And secondly, there's going to be another group of people who are going to, you know, wait until the series has run its 15 episodes. They're going to sign up for the trial period. They'll, um, what is it called when you watch the show? Mar they'll marathon the show. Binge it. Yeah, they'll yep. binge watch it over a weekend. You know, they'll look at whatever else is on the thing. And then when the trial experience is over, they'll, they'll cancel yeah. And the thing is, is, you know, when you've got this kind of a hybrid, there's a little bit of advertising. There's the obvious subscription. The question is, do the subscribers, do the people who want to pay full freight, are they paying the bills? Because if they are, then the, the rest is gravy, right? You know, maybe some of those people will, will binge watch it for free during the trial period and go, hey, that was really good. I'm going to subscribe to the next season. Or maybe they'll just word of mouth it, you know, and, and help, you know, build it that way. Either either way, those are both good. And any kind of subscription plan is going to have to involve this kind of two-tier level in which people are paying what they're willing to pay to get the stuff. And some people are going to pay the full freight and other people are going to either have to be on a steep discount or have to do it just on the advertising. Yeah. Well, and too, as we've said, you know, we've said before, hopefully the subscription model will make it worth it for them to keep. Because on the after show, they said that they were almost up to $8 million an episode. So that's a... Uh -huh. uh, oh, no, that wasn't on the after show. That was on Collider again. But uh, that's interesting. I've, I've, so I've heard six, I've heard eight. It'll be interesting to see what those final numbers end up buying. Um, some of the uh, adjectives used to uh, describe uh, Michael Burnham were uh, fascinating. Uh, intelligent, complex, conflicted. I like those. Um, <clears throat> Slate went on to say uh, that the uh, first two chapters they felt of Discovery were uneven, 
But then they go on to point out that probably the first two seasons of Next Generation were as well. So there's, you know, that's something to look forward to as far as the past as a marker in Trek. Uh, and then I saw many reviews say that uh, this is not your father's Star Trek, you know, so I thought that was really interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, so I mean, there's, there's some differences, but I, I think that fundamentally it, it is Star Trek. Uh-huh. You know, what are the core concepts do you think that are? So we have a lot of the values of Star Trek here, right? Now, we're with any new iteration, you want to put them in a different context. You want to put them in a different location. Um, in this environment, we're going to have war with the Klingons, something that was always threatened in the original series, but was always averted, sometimes yeah. even by, you know, a you know, the, the writers in the case that, like, we're going to have the Organians just separate the two. You know, we, we had some really tense episodes in which you really thought this could be war. Right? I, it probably the most like that is uh, the the uh, balance of terror. Right? I mean, you really feel throughout that whole episode that uh, things could turn out badly and this could be, we, we could basically, this could have been the the pilot that we just watched, in which okay, now now we're gonna have a season at war against the Romulans in that case, and I think there's some tense episodes with the Klingons, in which you know you feel like things could go south. I think one of the things that's missing here, because TV works differently, is that show is was you know it 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 really is episodic because because television was episodic. And that would give you a little bit of faith as an audience that things will be resolved by the end of the episode. And that will just reset to normal. And while Star Trek was undermining that during the original series and building some continuity, there was still a strong sense that you're not going to suddenly introduce a war in the middle of the season. I mean, what would that be? Nobody had ever done anything like that. And TV doesn't work that way anymore. So, I mean, you know, they really could wrap this up around episode eight and then have a kind of a, you know, five seasons or five shows of aftermath. And and we wouldn't be like, what? You totally blew my mind with that. We'd be like, okay, this is interesting, whatever. Yeah. Well, I've heard that's where the break will be is episode eight. We're going to get the first eight and then after the Christmas mm-hmm. break, we'll get seven So, more. you know, I thought you had made some predictions about Lorca. And I thought, you know, you're pro. I watched it, and after the after my first watching, I thought you're about eighty five percent correct. Now I think, in some ways, they they anticipated your drama sensitivities and you know ability to figure out that uh, Lorca was going to feel like a, a a dark character. And on the one hand, they played to it. On the other hand, I think they did some inverting of it. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think Lorca's gonna be a a slightly more heroic guy than the guy you kind of described last week, but in some other ways he felt a little darker. Yeah. Right. I mean, he's he's you know they described him on uh, after Trek as as being a collector, and yeah. you know he had the Gorn skeleton, and he had this this creature that they found, and. You know, he finds stuff, and, and in one sense, that's what you'd expect from a, uh, an explorer, a guy who's going out to face the unknown, new civilizations, 
unexplored planets. And on the other hand, it's it's kind of creepy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, true. Very true. Well, while we're talking about Lorca, that's the last thing I wanted to hit before we jump right to it, as we always do. Talk about Jason Isaacs as an actor. Obviously, he is probably best known as playing Lucius Malfoy in the Harry Potter movie. Mm-hmm. Also, somebody who, less so in the movies, more so in the books, who is, you know, a little conflicted as well, playing one side thinking, oh my god, how did I get myself here? Uh, but he also has a Star Wars connection, too, by playing, uh, uh, by doing the voiceover work for the Inquisitor in Season 1 of Rebels. Uh, so that's fun. Uh, he also has a great role in the OA, where, kind of like he, in this in this episode where he starts off a little bit cha- charming then turns a little more diabolical so that's fun uh but he's an actor who has 112 credits to his name at least according to the internet movie database and uh you know you'll look through it and see stuff like i didn't know he was on the west wing that's you know totally crazy uh and a lot of it too is a, a crap ton of voice work including playing you know lex luthor in a couple of dc's animated movies so uh you know You've probably heard or seen Jason Isaacs in something more than likely. You know, I saw him in a in a trailer just the other day, and yeah, he's got like four movies coming out soon. And he wasn't being mentioned. You know, it was oh really? Yeah, it was like they were mentioning the other people, but they were you know he was featured in the trailer, yeah. But he wasn't getting the you know the the name being posted, and yeah. so uh, you know I, I think this may be a turning point for him. Could very well be. Could very well be. And especially if he, you know, he his character might not even make it past the season. Yeah. You know, so we don't even know what's going to happen. All right. Well, with that in mind, as always, folks, let's get to it. You know, that, that offers a really interesting, you know, thing for the show, right? Because we, we would keep Burnham in this uh, awkward position. Because you are just about to, I was just about to write a note, and I think it's exactly what you're about to say. Go ahead. Because right now, Lorca wants her because, as he describes at the end of the episode, you know, she's got this predictive thinking, she's out of the box, she's not necessarily by the rules, context is king. And if the war ends and Lorca goes back to doing whatever guys like Lorca do in peacetime, yeah. And there's a new captain of the Discovery, and this person is more of an explorer, more of a uh, diplomat, you know. Then all of a sudden, Burnham remains the uh, the mutineer. And well, I can well this. So of course we have to imagine that probably, but whatever she ends up doing this season, yeah. whether it's undermining Lorca to stop whatever diabolical thing he's on or helping Lorca to because it could go either right. way uh, or helping Lorca to you know save the day that she will probably be you know give all of her stuff will be taken yeah, away yeah in, in like, the sense that Starfleet will probably rehabilitate her but that that yes. won't rehabilitate her completely in the minds of guys like Saru who oh, that's will true. always think that yep. she's dangerous Yep. And I think there'll be people who are of the Starfleet doesn't shoot first. You know, we've got these higher yep. values, and and you are frankly an out of the box danger. And I don't like the fact that you're on my ship. And true, I think that yeah, because we can imagine. I was going to say we you can imagine that Lorca is not going to be there next right. year, not just because of Jason Isaacs, but just because of you know, 
you can just imagine whatever, however it's going to end. It, it either isn't going to end well for him, and that could be in a good way or a bad way. Right. You know what I mean? So then the question is, I doubt that they're going to go so far as to make her captain of the Discovery. Right, right. But then who would become captain of the Discovery? And then what then becomes their mission if they were initially supposed to be a science vessel anyway? Yeah, I imagine they go back to science and exploration. Yeah. And, you know, again, you could give them some kind so of... They're on a five-year mission. Yeah, you, you can give them some kind of archy science to be doing. You know, discovering Sector 12 or something. Yeah. But you could you could put new twists on the, the rehabilitation of Michael Burnham. Yeah. As the new captain is like, yeah, you're a, you're a problem. You're dangerous. Yeah. All right, for real this time, let's get to it. <laughs> Captain's log, starting. It's five-year mission. So uh, this episode starts uh, six months past the events of the uh, last episode. Burnham is on a shuttlecraft going where? We don't know. Turns out uh, her and a bunch of the convicts are being taken to drill some dilithium. I guess that means there's slave labor in the future. Oh, uh, so they uh, they also mentioned, too, I don't know if you saw this little blurb in the uh, after Trek, but uh, that whole set was FX, was was special effects. Um, she wasn't on any set during that one. It was total green screen, even For, what they were sitting on. Oh, the, uh, the shuttle. The shuttle? Yeah. Uh, so the convicts are all talking. We hear that apparently Andorians are looked down upon. Has that always been a thing, or is that just early Trek? I, I think it, well, part, it may be some early Trek, but I think it's also, these are bad dudes, and their attitudes are probably not the attitudes of healthy, fully functioning. Yeah, that's true. Good point. Good point. Starfleet officers. Or uh, even just like regular civilians, mm -hmm. who you'd expect to be more optimistic and hopeful. So uh, we see that uh, some of the other inmates, in uh, one of the other inmates is upset with Burnham because she was the one who started the war. And killed over, uh, so far killed over 8,000 people. Burnham lets us know that it was 8,162. It felt a little bit cliche-y to me. I feel like that's one of those things that they've been adding to movies lately where, you know, the person burdened with some kind of murder knows the exact number of people that have been killed in the thing. I feel like I, I just saw that recently somewhere, but it still doesn't come to me where that was. Yeah. Th th my response to that particular piece was... This is Spock and Data giving you, or C-3PO, yeah. giving you, like, way more accurate information than the context, you know, called for. That's fair. That's a different look at it. You know, so it would be frequently that, uh, you know, someone would say, oh, it's chilly down here. And, and, you know, Data would be, well, it's 53.28 you know, degrees. You're like, I didn't need that precision. <laughs> yeah. Cold actually worked quite well. <laughs> So then suddenly something goes wrong with the shuttlecraft, and without a word, the uh, pilot goes to evac. There's apparently, uh, it's micro, it's a micro, so this is a uh, microorganism, GS54, that apparently feeds off electricity. So the pilot has to go and uh, go out there and try and scrape them all off, or they're going to drift off and die. It's like little tiny Gelka. <laughs> yeah, apparently. Apparently. <laughs> uh, so the uh, Asian convict is like, hey, everybody, just relax. Stop freaking out. The pilot knows what she's doing. And as if on cue, the pilot dies and is thrown off the ship. So the rest of the inmates attempt to break their bonds while Burnham just sits there and watches. 
Uh, again, they talked about this in the after show. It was something that I had noticed too, but this really doesn't look like Burnham is in a good place right now. It looks oh, like, no. oh, this is, yeah, if this is the way it's going to be, this is where I'm going to die, and it's fine. I'm not going to fight about it. Enter here the Discovery, which is a, a beautiful shot of the ship. It's like a nice little introduction there. It was a beautiful reveal. Yes, it was great. Uh, they're using the tractor beam to pull the shuttle aboard, and uh, it also helps us do a flyby of the ship so that we're introduced to what it looks like as we go into the opening credits. Two things here I noticed in the uh, opening credits this time, uh, which I'm sure were there last time, I just didn't notice it, was that uh, Nicholas Meyer, who directed Wrath of Khan, is a consulting producer on the show. Yeah. And as well, uh, one of the executive producers is also uh, Eugene Roddenberry, uh, mm-hmm. obviously Gene Roddenberry's son. So, so interesting. W- what I read two. is that uh, you know Roddenberry is on board in part to help make sure that they stay true to track, and Nicholas Meyer is on board to make sure that the characters are super amazing super amazing fully fleshed out yeah i've also heard too i don't know if you've heard this rumor but that also he's developing a uh a con series oh yeah yeah a show about con so that'd be interesting so i was Uh, i was looking at the imdb and the list of you know they'll tell you how many episodes people are in yeah and right away i noticed there were some errors it said that uh, captain Giorgio would be in all 15 Obviously, a she might be credited on all fifteen. Yeah, Uh, probably part of her contract or something. Well, if you notice too, both Jason Isaacs and Anthony Rapp were both in the credits for the first two episodes as well. Um, But they had mud down for six episodes. Interesting, really. Yeah. Huh. All right. Well, we'll see. I guess. Yeah. I wonder if, if this is, you know, where uh, Lorca's getting his Gorn skeletons or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> oh, possible. That's good. It's good thinking. I like that. Uh, so the cons are, or uh, the cons are escorted off the ship via gunpoint. Well, phaser point, whatever. They comment on how new the ship is, mm-hmm. and yet here we are, nowhere near the front lines. So already something is a little bit askew. Uh, we meet the chief of security, Landry. Uh, who uh, immediately loves the cons. I mean that completely uh, uh, sarcastically. She calls them garbage. She also calls um, uh, Burnham the uh, first mutineer. That's our first reference to that. Yeah. Which uh, also, according to uh, TrekWeb, is not exactly true, which you may also know too, because there was an episode of of, uh, Enterprise called Hatchery, where apparently we also uh, have some Starfleet mutineers happening. So, but those were never officially put on trial, or we never saw them put on trial, so we don't know exactly how that, uh, how that ended up working out for them. But So that is also a thing. The cons notice a few more things as they're being taken through the ship. For instance, there's a, there's a Starfleet black badge that's like half black, and most of the uniforms are silver, which proves that this is a science vessel. In the mess hall, uh, Michael sees Kayla, calls to her. I don't remember if she was on the Shinzao or not, mm. or also if that is some sort of biological enhancement that she's wearing. I'm assuming she was, since Michael knew her name, but I had no idea there. Yeah, I, I thought she was from the first one. Yeah. So, uh, Michael gets her food, she sits down with the cons, one of them threatens her, and they attack, but Michael, as we would guess, holds her own using some kind of 
Vulcan Kung Fu or something. Vulcan should stick to logic. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but then Landry holds a phaser as Burnham is about to go for uh, what possibly could have been a kill shot. We don't know. Landry says, the captain wants to see you. So another question I had here was, uh, why is Burnham in yellow? Everyone else, was, all the other cons were in gray. Is this because she's former Starfleet? Is this so the mutineer can stand out amongst all the other... Uh... I, I think uh, for both re I mean, both reasons, and in-world and out-world. One, we want to be able to keep track of her. Well, yes, obviously. But then also, if you were the guards, you'd want to know who the person was who had the, the military training and the Vulcan kung fu and... <laughs> right. You know, who was able to, you know, figure out how to take a fork and a tray and use them either to kill the guy next to her or to disable the force field or, you know, create a, a warp bubble or... They get onto the turbo lift and go to the bridge where at the bridge we see Saru. Oh, is this a welcome friend on the bridge? No, because he says nothing to her and turns around. Yeah. We go into the captain's ready room and it's dark. Lorca is standing in front of a, a vast uh, space view. Mentions about, you know, as as far away as you always are from home. Don't you imagine that you can always see it? He then introduces himself. So then there's this chirp that is running throughout this entire episode. Or, I mean, in this entire scene. And at first, I couldn't place it. I'm like, I know I know that chirp. It's got to be something. And then there's a you see it for like two seconds. But sitting there on his uh, little stand-up desk there is, uh, is a triple. Yeah. One single triple. Which you can imagine uh, later must have been part of the collection. Right, yeah. Well, and yeah. Uh, in his, you know, menagerie, there's a dissected Tribble as well. Oh, is there? I missed that part. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. And, you know, so you're wondering, <laughs> did he dissect a Tribble to figure out how the reproduction works so he can spay and neuter this one? <laughs> yeah, must have been. <laughs> Because it's the only uh, time you ever just see one triple. Yeah, exactly. Lorca apologizes for the dark. He thinks that it makes him more mysterious, which I thought was really funny. But really, it was due to a uh, an accident to his eye. Weird. But Burnham quickly has put together that her arrival on Discovery was no accident. You know, he's allergic said, to Retinax 3. <laughs> yeah, it's Retinax 5, but anyway. Well, um, we're only up to 3 now. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Because it's so early back in the day, exactly. So uh, she says that she received no transfer orders, which is uh, highly unusual, and the ship did a course change in the middle of their journey. So uh, Lorca says, well, maybe the universe hates waste. Now, this is the second time we've heard, yeah. we've heard this, because in the first episode, Sarek basically says the same thing to her. He says that he would hate to waste, waste her potential and that she needs to find a way out of the prison. So uh, that's interesting there again. You know, I was thinking... The first time I watched this, this is really awkward for Sarek. Okay. You know, that? well, he's invested a lot in Michael Burnham. And the fact that she goes off and and commits this mutiny means that, one, he's got to distance himself from her. Obviously. But also, he's, you know, spent all this time grooming her. And, you know, what now? It's got to be a real disappointment. And I, I wonder how it affects his future relationship with spark fair i also well it'll be interesting too if we uh how much their connection still maintains yeah, well, we, you know with the whole mind melt thing that they did yeah. the last episode and we do get a spock reference here at the end 
Yes. Exactly. It also, as I was, you know, thinking about why did she commit the mutiny in the first place? That was a crazy thing to do. I mean, she had a. Well, she thought it was the. Not only did she think it was the yeah. right thing, but here's I'm gonna I'm gonna add a little extra depth to it. I think that for her, the Vulcan way was the only right way. That yes. she had to figure out what the Vulcans did, and all other methods of cat skinning were out. Only the Vulcan way for skinning a cat was was going to work. She's that committed to the Vulcan process. Well, the other way didn't work either, so <laughs> maybe she was right. He's uh, he's basically offering her uh, offering her uh, you know a chance to uh, to uh, get out of her situation. Lorca says he needs her and her training. She ultimately refuses, basically saying, "I'm going to go serve my." Uh, I'm going to go serve my my time. Uh, that's the way we're going to handle it. Uh, but she doesn't get a choice because uh, he says until the vessel is repaired, which is going to be at least three days, he says, uh, she's going to be put to work. I'm not a chauffeur, he says. I will use anything at my uh, anything that I can to achieve my mission. She mentioned earlier that uh, you know this is a kind of slave labor. Yeah, and you know we see this other places in Star Trek: Cardassians, Klingons using captives effectively as slaves and of course this was also the roman you know idea of slavery you lost in a war you were captured now you're a slave one of the elements of this notion of slavery is that it doesn't pass it doesn't taint anybody else right mm -hmm. you're a slave because you were captured because you became a prisoner and uh you know ultimately this is a very you know you, you get a different kind of slavery this way than you do, say, with the Greek notion of slavery, in which there are Greeks and there are barbarians. And there are bar uh -huh. all the barbarians, that is, the non-Greek speakers, the people whose, whose language is hard to comprehend, and they all go bar, 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 bar. Mm -hmm. They're all inferior, and they're all potential slaves just because they're barbarians. Burnham asks uh, Lorca what his mission is. He says uh, his mission is to win the war and to get everyone home safe and happy. So Landry takes her down to her room and says uh, she'll be brought to work, be brought uh, into work from 0800 hours, otherwise she'll be confined to quarters. Uh, her quarters, by the way, were uh, quarters S06 and S07 for any trivia nuts out there who want to remember these things. Um, <clears throat> we think we are about to get a sad, lonely moment with Michael lying on her cot, but then in walks cadet Celia Tilly, who, uh, who likes to talk a lot. So we you get know, this, this kind of... Go ahead. This was the kind of character that was like, you know, a Pushing Daisies kind of character. I wonder if this doesn't go all the way back to Fuller. Possibly, possibly. Pa pairing the Vulcan-educated and in-a-dark-place silent Burnham with giddy, silly, fun, but also very, you know, technically savvy, uh, you know, Tilly. So we get this, like, it was actually nice to get this moment of levity because everything had been so heavy up to this point, so it was nice for her to, like, come in and be a little comic relief. Uh, we get this silly scene that kind of reminds me of, like, the odd couple, almost. Uh-huh. Until suddenly we hit a, uh, a black alert. Dun-dun-dun. <laughs> Tilly can't say what it is. She refuses. She's like, until somebody else tells you, I can't tell you anything. 
but we see this water rise and then fall back to the uh, fall back to the counter. Um, the next morning, Michael makes herself an outfit, opens the door to find uh, First Officer Saru of all people there waiting for her. Uh, they take a little walk down the hallway towards engineering. We find out that it is a science vessel. Three hundred different scientific things or uh, laboratories could be uh, all going on at the same time. Once we get to engineering, Burnham tries to tell Saru, you know, basically that she was sorry. Uh, Saru uh, accepts it, but also calls her dangerous and says that I fear you. And if you do cause trouble, I will do a better job of protecting my cabin than you did of yours. Jeez. That was, that was, that was pretty cold. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> uh, we go into engineering. Um, <clears throat> she's told to find a, a console to go stand at. She goes and stands next to Tilly, who says, uh, oh, no, we have assigned seats here. To where we meet the engineer here, played by uh, Anthony Rapp. Um, uh, uh, engineer Stamets. Uh, his personality is sort of like half Vulcan, half like you in personality. You know what I mean? Very like, <laughs> you know, she, he's trying to get out of her what, you know, who she is and what she wants. And he's like, you're just making this all confusing. Just tell me. Let's get to the point. Tell me right here what you need, and then we're going to move on. Please. And uh, he tells her to find a console. It's not like we have assigned seats here, he says. So now Tilly's been uh, made to look Outed. here. Yeah, exactly. That's right. So uh, time passes a little bit here, and we find that the engineer is working with someone else on a uh, sister ship to try and uh, solve the same problems. He, uh, he apparently has, uh, has, has gone a couple of steps further than Stamets has gone to. You know, this this was, I thought, a nice use of technobabble to, in this case, conceal from the audience what they were talking about. Because we want to have the reveal with Lorca at the end about what's going on on the ship. And so they could have some technobabble talk and we're like, oh, we don't know what they're talking about. It's some sciencey thing. So, uh... At that point, Burn or Stamets also says that uh, he's not jealous of him; that he's just worried about how far he has gotten it without figuring out all the all the computations quite correctly. So Burnham crosses toward him towards uh, towards him as he ends the transmission. I hate lurkers, he says. So Burnham shows him uh, the part of the equation that he thinks is wrong. She says it's biochemistry, not quantum engineering. So he uses a breath scan and he enters the engineering room that's been sealed off. Weird. So back in her quarters, uh, Burnham steals some of the drool from Tilly, goes back to engineering, and uses said drool to enter the secret room. And there she discovers... Uh, discovers... Discovers a garden? Like a bioluminescent garden of some sort? We're trying to figure out exactly what that is. Later, uh, Lorca gives us the news that in engineering that the sister ship was lost. Maybe Stamets was right to worry. Hmm... He sends uh, Stamets and a team over to retrieve the information. He tells Stamets, hey, uh, you should uh, take Burnham. But Stamets resists. Lorca returns with a very definitive, this is not a democracy. It was interesting because at this point, so we've got that, that this is not a democracy. And he also earlier when he's like, hey, do I have to remind you that we are at war? You know, like he uses that as an excuse to, you know, do everything basically. So I think this is really starting to hint around to some of that darker stuff that we're going to get into in some of the later episodes. I, I think right here is the beginning of it. I also think that, well, you know, like a Jellico, this is a kind of a character, one, he's really familiar. He, he appears all the time in fan fiction because people 
respond frequently to the peaceful utopian Star Trek with being like, eh, it's a little too utopian. My character, my captain, is going to be more like the military officers that I met, you know, when I was in the service or whatever. And you get this kind of hard, serious guy. And, you know, frequently, of course, reading the fan fictions, you're like, what is this guy doing here? You know, you've got a guy who is very much a serious soldier type guy, and he's doing archaeology, or he's doing, you know, stuff that's, it's not his ballywick. But of course, this story is a war story. We're at war with the Klingons, and so this character actually makes a lot of sense. And you do kind of feel like, with a Captain Jellico that Starfleet has a couple of these guys in its back pocket. And in a crisis, it pulls them out and sends them where they need to go. Right. You know, these are guys who were, you know, they came up in security or tactical. And they, you know, probably won a few battles, and that's how they got their captaincy. And they, ne they never, you know, transition out of being the tactician, the strategist, the the guy who's, you know, thinking about winning the next battle. And that's not really what Starfleet is. And so those guys are really, they're a specialty. So Lorca here asks Saru to, uh, to assess Burnham. Uh, Saru says, uh, well, mutiny aside, she is one of the smartest officers in Starfleet. Lorca turns to Stamets and says, and he knows you. Love that bit. That's great. <laughs> yeah. So they uh, shuttle off the ship. Uh, Tally has also made the, uh, or Tilly, I mean, has also yeah. made the uh, the away team. Uh, she talks on some more and then apologizes to Burnham. She said uh, she was uh, not wanting to be seen with her. You know, it's funny. So she makes this confession on the on the shuttlecraft. And, you know, my response was, if you're trying to, like, avoid being associated with her here, like, the second time people have seen you together, isn't the time to reveal that, like, your early attempt to distance yourself from her was a contrivance. <laughs> because, of course, Stamets is just sitting a few feet away from you, and you know, the commander's security is over there. So your secret is totally out. But, you know, she should also realize that, like, both Lorca and Saru, you know, apparently like Burnham. So that really any friendship with her would also make her look good. So, yeah. So, I mean, the, the question always comes down to who's watching, right? Yeah. Right, exactly. So, uh, I also thought at this point that Tilly was going to die. But apparently I was wrong. I thought, like, she wasn't going to make it through the end of this, uh, through the end of this away team. But sure enough, she is. Well, and she actually showed she was a, a quite capable officer. Yeah, so, absolutely, absolutely. So she mentions, you know, that she's been fast-tracked at the Academy, that she's this great engineer, and then she's the one who spots the Klingon in the dark. She was involved in some other, you know, critical problem-solving, you know, stuff on the ship. Yep. So they arrive at the Glen, which I am assuming must be a reference to John Glenn. That makes sense. Yep. Uh, we get, uh, and, uh, just before they land, uh, Stamets and, uh, and Burnham get into it a little bit, 
and he, he gives this great speech about uh, not physics as biology, as biology, but physics with biology, that whole thing. I thought that was awesome. Also, it was a, you know, a bit of good, like, Trek speak there as well, mm-hmm. you know. And it's something, something uh, you know, these big ideas that can, like, just be, like, melted down into this little great little, you know, paragraph. Uh, we also get a little backstory on him. He was uh, searching for the veins of the universe, and then, and he pointedly says, your war, <laughs> I like that, uh, started here, and then they co-opted our research. And now my friend and his colleagues are dead because of our research. And of course, you know, he gives this speech, and I, I go back to Wrath of Khan, your, your favorite, mm-hmm. and uh, Kirk's son, of course, he didn't know that at the time, giving his speeches True. about Federation and the, the Boy Scouts. and. Oh, yeah, I didn't think about that. That's good. Now, he, of course, was a civilian guy working on his mother's team, where yeah. Stamets is... In the, but he invokes, you know, the Federation's mission that we're supposed to be here for science and exploration and discovery. Right. Not, not for war, but your war. Uh, she says, like, I don't... She basically says, like, I don't even want to be here. Yeah. But uh, Stamets comes back with, well, if Lorca wants you here, then your, in- your intentions are less than moot. Yeah. <laughs> so really, we're getting an even more sinister sense about what Lorca is up to. Although, you know, again, I mean, you know, really... this guy's... This guy's got, I'm going to, you know, he's got two or three axes to grind. Yes. And. Well, that's fair. But the point, and that's fair. And in the end, you know, the way he comes, the way, you know, Lorca ends up coming across to Burnham, he's not that sinister. He's right. not that diabolical. He wants, you know, what is truly good for the Federation. So, yes, obviously, he, you know, it's, it's from his perspective, his point of view, and again, axes to grind. But right now, story-wise, we are certainly getting a very sinister, so that that way when the reveal happens at the end, yeah. it's a nice little twist on it. Yeah, yeah, I'm just always uh, very skeptical of my narrators. This may be the, histor- this may be the historian in me, so I'm, I'm critical of my sources, but uh, yeah, well, you know, when it, whenever a character is telling me about yes. another character, I'm always wondering... You know, what's your what's your motive? What's your bias? What's your relationship? Why are you why are you telling me this? Yep. Well, it's fun. So, for uh, for my birthday, Jamie got me a she got mm-hmm. me the the hardcover book uh, about Hamilton, about the making of Hamilton, which is also like footnoted. Some of the some of the lyrics are footnoted and whatnot. It's really fun. So, for instance, speaking along these lines, uh, <clears throat> in Hamilton, he says. Uh, Oh, there's the joke about uh, Martha Washington named his feral tomcat after him. And Hamilton says, that's true. So he footnoted that by saying, this might not actually be true. Yeah. This could have come something that like came out of something Adams wrote, you know, yeah. to be dismissive of Hamilton. But he just loves the fact that Hamilton owns it. I, you know, oh, yeah, that's true. Whatever. It's cool. You know, I love that. That makes me laugh so hard. Anyway, so uh, now they're on the ship and they're searching around and there are these like people who have been sort of like rearranged or liquefied or you know like their interiors have been liquefied or they've just been messed up and somehow i don't know it's not pretty to look out that's all i know for sure looks like a bad transporter accident if you ask me it does uh and there's a jump the difference between transporters and and you know warping are not necessarily all that you know different in the sense that you're you've got a certain amount of assembly reassembly 
Because yeah, normally what would happen if you were going the speed of light like this, you know, what happens in a black hole is that you get spaghettified. And so, you know, the idea that you're, well, we think of a car, right? If a car stops too quickly, you get thrown forward and you bang the thing, right? Well, what happens if you just magnify that by like, you know, a gazillion times faster, right? And you're like, your insides come outside and... All sorts of yummy things happen. Well, it's funny, too, yeah. because there are a couple of different... So, you know, we do see the one body that's, like, sort of half-mangled, half-like liquid. And then there's another There's another pile of something in the corner that looks like it's just straight, like, jelly. You know what I mean? It's just straight toast. Yeah. So, uh, really interesting. A bunch of different things happen to a bunch of different people from the looks of things. Uh, then we get this jump scare as Burnham sees something, like, run across one of the doorways behind her. Then there's a bathlet on the ground. Then we see a pile of dead Klingons. What is happening? Then we see movement again. Then there's a Klingon behind behind Tilly, who's like yeah. shushing her. Then there's a monster, and we run. We had a good long alien sequence, right? From that other science fiction franchise from the seventies. You got this long, quiet, searching the ship, and you're like, it's spooky, and the power's not on, and what's wrong here? And then we get a monster that chases everybody, and it, it felt you know, like, very, like a very good alien thing. And, you know, my feeling afterwards, you know, after the episode was, that was about the right amount. Because dipping our toe into, into Alien was fun, but Star Trek is not horror. I wouldn't want to watch... Star Trek Bug Hunters. <laughs> yes. You know, it just would feel like this isn't Star Trek after a while. Absolutely. But a little bit of it, that's that's fine. So uh, they run around a corridor, and uh, they lose that one security guy whose name I didn't even get. Uh, and uh, then they, they, they rush into the engineering, and Stamets locks them in. Uh, they try to get as much information out of the... That, that's our first red shirt, by the way. Yeah, oh, yeah good point. <laughs> that, uh... Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. Mark it down. <laughs> uh, they try to get out as much information out of the consoles as they possibly can. Then Tilly sees a device lying in the middle of the uh, this uh, this uh, chamber. Chamber. Thank you. So they go and they grab that. Okay. So then the monster is then like trying to push itself through this like giant durasteel door. Landry, meanwhile, is upstairs on this landing. She's trying to blow torch through some other kind of open door. So then Burnham, she's like, she says, hey, I can buy us time, but I need a phaser. And Landry yells back, oh, no, mutineers, mutineers don't get phasers. Uh, but Stamets, because he's smart and realizes what her plan must be, tosses her the weapon. The monster bursts through the door. Oh, no! But Burnham shoots, annoying it. Landry, back up on the upper deck, is still trying to, like, blow torch away. Burnham shoots it again, and now it's mad. Burnham then dashes into a, a, you know, a vent hole or whatever. And then the monster chases after her and the rest of the team gets away and finishes, finishes the door and then they run out. Meanwhile, Burnham gets herself into the one of the Jeffrey's tube. And I wrote down Jeffrey's tube before they even said it. So there. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Crawling through the Jeffrey's tube, she's reciting Alice in Wonderland. Uh, Burnham quickly makes her way through, but the creature is a little bit bigger and a little bit slower, but it's doing its best to keep pace after her. She calls ahead, telling the shuttle, like, her exact location, but the monster is keeping the press. It keeps coming after her. She tells the shuttle, open your top hatch, and a minute later, she's dropping out of the vent, 
and telling them to punch it, and whoosh, off they fly. Okay, maybe she didn't say punch it, but in my head she did. <laughs> Commercial. Uh, it was funny because when we saw the Klingon, uh, I thought it was interesting because it looked like one of the like next generation Klingon outfits. Yeah, you know? yeah. I thought that was really interesting because that's not what we were seeing in episode one of this of this series. So right, that and was I, really cool. I think you know, so one of the problems that you have in television, and they certainly had it in the '90s with Next Generation, it, they had it more pronouncedly in the original series, was you got a costume budget. And it takes time to make costumes, and it takes uh, money to make costumes, and you end up with, you know, what TB Trope says, described based on Star Trek as the planet of hats. You know, so that all Klingons dress alike. Why? Costume budget. Only humans dress in this diverse, varied way. Klingons all dress the same. Romulans all dress the same. Apparently, everyone's walking around in, in these kind of checkered silver zoot suits. And the same thing, I think, was true for the Klingons in Next Generation. Is they all look the same because of costume budgets and the time it would have taken to design. And so the only time you actually saw new, interesting Klingon outfits is when for one specific character who was supposed to be the feature and the focus. And so... I think the idea here is that the familiar Klingon outfit of Next Generation is actually like what you'd see on a on a bird of prey on a on a D seven on a a warship, and that this other stuff was ceremonial. It was political. It was uh, it was something else. It was ritualistic, and that spending all this extra money, this the six million, the eight million, whatever it is, you know, they could afford to say, well. Klingons in this context dress like this, and then when Klingons go out to dinner, they dress like this. And Klingons <laughs> right. at the opera dress like this, and Klingons on the warship look like this, and Klingons at the beach, you know, have this kind of swimwear. Rather than look, Klingons wear the exact same thing at the beach, out to dinner, at the opera, at war, you know, doing science, which is kind of what we got from Next Generation. I also somehow managed during this commercial break to skip the commercial. <laughs> I don't know how I got so lucky, but I was like, oh, I'll take this. Let's move on. Great. <laughs> I tried messing with the controls during the next commercial break, and I couldn't make it happen again, so it's not like a thing I could recreate, which was annoying, but oh well, anyway. So uh, back to the show. We are uh, back on the bridge. Uh, Michael uh, uh, Burnham walks in. Uh, sees uh, Saru there and uh, asks permission to come aboard, to come aboard the bridge, because Lorca wants to see her, which Saru grants. Uh, he walks her slowly, like two feet, uh, <laughs> to the uh, ready room, and uh, Saru says, uh, you know, you were always a good officer, until you weren't. Now, I like Saru a lot. Mm -hmm. I find him uh, very likable and funny, but he apparently is the divisive character on the internet because there's so many people who just hate him which is really which is very interesting yeah what were they not I think both his um i don't know I, I have a feeling it has a lot to do with the uh i don't know actually i should look into it but i that that was just rumblings i was seeing everywhere i was looking because i love people not like i can see two things right <laughs> yeah um one is the characters in in opposition to our protagonist uh -huh. and to the extent that you Fair. are identifying with and siding with the protagonist those people who are opposed are bad guys. Yeah. The other one is that 
we like our Starfleet officers bold, confident. You know, they should be going boldly where no man has gone before. True. And um, Saru's cautiousness can sometimes feel like it borders on cowardice. Yeah, that was the way I was leaning on that. And so, now, as someone who has argued many times that one of the good things for, uh, about Star Trek is that it shows a diverse team with a range of talents, and that, yes. you know, it's fine to have your science officer or your medical officer be a little bit of a pacifist or a coward or, you know, someone who says, I'm not here to fight, yep. um, or I don't like the fighting. It's not, you know, obviously this guy is not going to be moved into tactical or security or... Right. Um, Damn it, Jim, I'm a doctor, not a ninja. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, I, I think Saru is fine. But I can see where he's not everyone's ideal Starfleet officer. Well, I like him. I think both his character and his species are very distinct. And they're, it's, it's new to the universe. Right. Really, I, yeah. think, I think it's great. So uh, Lorca offers her a spot on the crew of the Discovery. Uh, he says, don't worry about Starfleet. They gave me discretion to win this war however I could. But she refuses again. Why do you want me to stay? Uh, she asks. Uh, you are working on weapons, she assumes. Spores. This goes against the Geneva Conventions of 1928 and 2155. I love it. I'm glad that we got one of those references where yeah. they take something we know and then add something to it. Julius Caesar, Genghis Khan, Lexor Maka. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so then Lorca says, no, I am not who you think I am. Oh, no. He, I'm sorry, 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 sorry. That was wrong. She says, I am not who I think I am, which is apt <laughs> because I know, right? There's a big difference in those two people. But it's apt because, uh, you know, she even describes herself, you know, like trying to start a war, which was not her intent. Right. You know, she just said that. Uh, she said, before I was a mutineer, I was a first officer in Starfleet. That's who I am. <clears throat> we also got a mention during that of the United Federation of Planets, which I thought was awesome. Uh, but Lorca says, uh, no, I know who you are, and you hate being wrong. So they site-to-site transport to engineering. Uh, to engineering uh, uh, test room alpha. And then uh, he puts her into the cabinet and closes the door. It's not a new weapon, he says. It's a new way to fly. An organic way to fly. I thought all the millennials will love this, right? Organic and fresh fuel. Let's do this. He says that... Uh, no, he, uh, he says that the hope is to be able to travel 90 light years in like 1.3 seconds. Um, there's a microscopic web leading to anywhere. The veins and muscles of the universe. He then sends her on a, a, on a quick trip around to uh, Romulus, to the Andorian moons, and others. And then you'll be home before you know it. Let's stop here, because we got some interesting things that happened during this little flash, flash here. So we see a little bit of Romulus. On the Andorian moons, we see uh, the Preserver from uh, that episode where uh, Kirk becomes a, 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 an Indian. We also have um, Starbase 11. You know, from when uh, Kirk gets uh, court-martialed. And then uh, there's also the uh, Yanis 6 mining system, which is where uh, the Horda lives. Ah. So, yeah. A couple of little interesting things there. I found those I found that ref those references on, uh, on uh, Memory Alpha as well. But, yeah, totally cool stuff if you're uh, looking for them in that little flash there. So Lorca says to Burnham, No, I do know you. 
Your actions at Binary Star were right. It's the kind of thinking that wins wars, and I need your thinking at my side. Universal laws for lackeys, he says. Context is for kings. They said the name of the episode! <laughs> you started a war, he says. Don't you want to help me end it? I think it? all three episodes have said the name of the... Well, I don't know that they actually ever said Battle at Binary Suns. Oh, they got really close, though. Probably. Anyway, uh, we get another pretty shot of the Discovery and uh, the giant red sun. Mm -hmm. You think it's over. Oh, but it's not over. I thought that that's what they'd leave us hanging. I thought we'd be like, oh, well, is she going to stay on the ship? Is she not? Obviously, we know she's going to, but I thought they'd leave us hanging, but no. We cut to Saru watching the shuttle leave. And the little hairs on his head stand straight up. He's threat ganglia. Yeah, I was wondering, is, is this like, is, him, is he sensing death here? I was like trying to figure out what his, uh, what that little reaction was. It like gave him chills or something. So uh, we cut back to the cabin with Tilly. Uh, Burnham uh, basically says she's not going anywhere. <clears throat> Tilly then announces that one day she is going to be captain. God help Starfleet if that happens. <laughs> so Burnham hands her a copy of Alice in Wonderland. She says, uh, uh, my foster mom used to read it to me and her son. He and I were the only humans on the planet. You're like, wait Sometimes. a minute. <laughs> exactly. Because she's, she's, she's talking human. about Spock. Right? Yes, exactly. But she referred cool. to him as a human. Yeah. Which Interesting. I think is one of those interesting, like, because, of course, different people with their different points of view are going to look at somebody like Spock differently. Yep. And she may have noticed the way the other Vulcans treated Spock as a human. And so she's like, well, you and I are humans together. Yep. Whereas the identity that Spock himself would take is that he's a Vulcan. Yeah, I think that was, I, I, <clears throat> that was interesting. It was. There was apparently also uh, on the, uh, the animated series, yeah. apparently also there, Spock mentions uh, Alice in, that his mother loved Alice in Wonderland. Mm -hmm. So uh, I thought that was a really cool, like, connection there. Burnham goes on to say that uh, she loved it because sometimes things don't adhere to logic. Sometimes up is down and down is up. And sometimes when you're lost, dot 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 you're found. But we don't go on that note either because now we see Lorca and Landry in this like weird lab or something. And then he says he wants to spend time with it. No, wait, so he says has our new so he says is our new thing as and you're not at first you're thinking they're talking about Burnham. Yes. Oh, snug as a bug in a rug. And again, you're like, Burn, oh, well, uh, we're going to spend some time together tonight. And you're like, what? Uh... And at, at that point, you still could be like, well, Lorca's going to arrange another meeting with, you know, and like cultivate Burnham. And then, you know, the, the dismissed and, and Landry leaves. And then, oh, no, we're not talking about Burnham. <laughs> yeah. We're talking about exactly. <laughs> so when she leaves, we get a bigger view of the lab. Uh... I even wrote, is that a Gorn skeleton? Again, I called it before they said it, uh, they said it on the after show. I was like, yes, I got that one right. <laughs> uh, arena, yes. Then we see some other little creatures lying around. Apparently you saw a dissected Tribble, which was great. And then he makes his way to the giant force field. And then we see the creature that was chasing Burnham on the Glen. Dun, dun, dun. So it's fun because I like that... You've already mentioned it. The collector, he calls him like the collector. There's also that. There's also that character in Mar the Marvel universe that uh, Benicio del Toro played, which was also the collector. So, I love that. But it also gives you know, again, some more of that dark 
Because again, you get to that end point where he's telling her about the veins of the universe and the mushrooms, and you're like, okay, maybe we totally read him wrong. Maybe he's not as evil as we yeah. thought. Maybe he does blah, blah, blah. And then we get to this dark, sinister, you know, lab. His menagerie. Yes, exactly. And we're like, what is happening? That is so crazy. So, uh, yeah, there we are. That's the end of that episode. Credits. Dun, dun, dun. We'll have to see how the rest of the series ha goes from here, and I'm excited to see it, that's for sure. Uh, anything else you want to mention here that we didn't get to? Just that uh, they, you know, so in the, in the, in the After Trek show, speaking about the kitty, he says, you know, we're not going to introduce something and then not pay it off. And this is now our second clear reference to Spock. Right. right. You wonder, huh? Are they going to pay it off? Well, both you and I... Yeah, but both you and I have already sort of speculated that he must already at this point be on the Enterprise with Pine. He is, yeah. Based on the, the established timeline, he should be on the Enterprise with... Uh, well, not with Pine. <laughs> with... Uh... Oh, with Pike. <laughs> with Pike. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway. But, you know, so there were one of the first voice actors to do work with Star Trek online was Leonard Nimoy. And the early stuff was all basically you'd fly into a new sector and he would give you like, you know, two sentences on the sector. Right. Yeah. And there was some other kind of, you know, introductory bit pieces that were Leonard Nimoy voices. But there was also a time travel mission early on where you go back and you fight you know what I'm actually thinking this may be a different game I played anyway there's a time travel episode where you encounter the Enterprise you rescue them but you have a much more advanced ship and you know Spock is uh, unidentified you know ship please identify yourself and you know, you respond, and, and his response comes back in a kind of knowing, um, like, uh, I understand I'm not supposed to know who you are, kind of, uh, uh, but thanks for rendering assistance. And, you know, you could actually have a, a situation like that where you interact with the Enterprise, but there's just this little, you know, communication with Spock. And it wouldn't have to be gigantic. It wouldn't have to be a Spock episode. Yeah. You know, but in the same way that the ship that comes to render assistance is the brand new, shiny... Uh, actually, you know, there was... Enterprise. There was, uh, Robert April was in command before Pike. So it can't be that brand new and shiny. But anyway, you know, the, the Constitution class shows up, the Enterprise. Yep. You don't have to have a lot of interaction... You know, to, to in a sense realize Spock is here. Yeah. You know, he he says something brief, and then, like ships do at the end of these things, they go their separate ways. Well, I've already saw I saw a recent uh, news article that also said that uh, they had cast Amanda. Uh huh. So we know we're gonna see her. Yeah. See, you know, we're we're getting an awful lot of Spock backstory. Yeah, pretty sure. Pretty sure that you know, we're going to find out that they've done the CGI work on his, on his pet cat. <laughs> exactly. The, the Salmet or 
from the animated series yeah from that episode mm-hmm. yeah well on that bombshell folks we're gonna go ahead and wrap <laughs> it up for this week i know cgi on an animated series pet cat boy that's gonna be something but we've already got a pet cat don't we <laughs> oh yeah the kitty do. yeah yeah so uh anyway that's it wrapping it up my name's matt coming to you from austin and as always say goodbye ken live long and prosper As always, you can find us on uh, SoundCloud. You can find us uh, somewhere on WordPress. And you can also find us on Facebook. Eventually, we'll be on that awesome iTunes thing. But until then, we'll see you all next week.